Hello and welcome to Read All About It, the podcast where people talk about their favourite and not-so-favourite books. Join me, Paul Cuddihy, as I take each guest on the literary journey of their life, from their most cherished childhood read and a book they'd recommend to anyone, to the book they couldn't be paid to read again, and much more in between. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about the Read All About It podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Read All About It podcast and I'm delighted to be joined on this episode by Hayley Reynolds who is a librarian working in Dublin. Hayley's Irish though she grew up in Australia and she's worked in various media jobs although she now works with Dundee Bathroom Libraries in Dublin while also studying part-time for a Master's in Library and Information Studies. Hayley hosts a podcast on recommended reading across all genres for the library which is called Need to Read, and you can find that on the DLR Library's SoundCloud. Well, in the pre-COVID days, she also co-hosted an art house film club, which uh, both of which hint at her love of film and literature. Hayley, welcome to the Read All About It podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Paul. Now, uh, obviously, I mentioned there that the fact that you run a, a podcast for the library, so it's so you're obviously on the other side of, of it now because you're used to, to yeah. asking the questions. I'm now going to put you on the spot throughout this podcast. Yeah, yeah, it's going to change how I look at people I interview now as well. Like I say, I'm a bit nervous, but it's fine. Oh, listen, it'll be absolutely fine. Although I always say, and you might find it as well when you're interviewing people on the podcast, it's the easier job when you're just asking yeah. questions. I've put you on the spot and asked you to choose some of your favourite books. And I know that's always difficult for anyone. Yeah, no, it is. I kind of thought it would be easier, but I kind of did struggle to choose some, especially my the younger ones. I find it hard to remember what I'd read when I was younger. I think as well, you know, that way, because I'm asking people just for one book, and quite often it's quite difficult just to choose one book. And some guests will just choose one. Other guests have maybe slightly, they've maybe given me a list of three or four because they literally can't just boil it down to one. But it's just a kind of starting point because obviously some books will, you'll remember them for different reasons. Yeah, exactly. I mentioned there, obviously, in the introduction that you work with, you know, Dunleary Latham Libraries, you're studying a master's as well. How did you come to, to work in the libraries? What, what brought you to that point? My mum is actually um, a librarian. She's retired now. Working in, in media, I kind of went through lots of different jobs that became redundant, basically, through, through like technology advancing and that kind of thing and outsourcing. So and then there was the recession in, in Ireland. Uh, so there were lots of years where I was just doing odd jobs. And I worked part time in the library at that time just for a summer job. And I really liked it, but I hadn't really thought about it as a career. Then I went back to a media job for about three years and then that got liquidated and bought out and I ended up going back to the libraries then and thinking it was a stopgap and then realised, no, I actually really like it and ended up staying. Now I'm seeing it, like I, I love it. Like, and especially now that we do a lot of online stuff as well and I kind of, con- you know, combine my other sort of interesting skills. And yeah, every day we just, it's such they're just lovely, interesting people that work in the library and then the customers that come in. And I just find it's, it's just... There's so many things I like about the job. It's it's like a really nice sort of social place where you talk about books all day, which is great. Yeah, because one of the things that struck me, and, and I was thinking about it ahead of, of talking to you, invariably anybody I've interviewed in the podcast, they either mention, particularly when they talk about their childhood reading and their experience of coming to books, it's either a teacher or a librarian who can almost set them off in that journey of loving books and I suppose that's quite. I suppose that's one of the lovely sides of the job. It's also a responsibility because there must be times that you're maybe putting a book into the hand of a child and you're thinking that's the start of something special. 
there are always people in the library that you work with who have a particular area that are really good and there's always someone who's amazing at children's books or young adults and you kind of tend to lean on them a little bit in those situations but um yeah there are lots of like really good resources and we have great reading guides like children's books ireland do really really good advice we have really good things to uh, reference as well but it, it, it's so lovely like i mean obviously there's no no one in the library at the moment so you do miss the kids coming in um but we do do story time and baby book club and those kind of things so yeah like you get you get better at it and it's more like you just want to make sure that you're giving them as many options as you can and also finding their reading level their comprehension level and that kind of thing so this can be scary with kids sometimes and you kind of obviously mentioned the fact that just now in Ireland the libraries are locked down effectively to the public I mean that's obviously a challenge for you and your colleagues in order to kind of obviously keep that connection with people who would otherwise love coming into the library yeah like it is it's our major kind of challenge at the moment figuring out how do we kind of reimagine our our services and how do we keep in touch with our borrowers because i mean a lot of our borrowers would be maybe isolated or or you know retired elderly people also migrants people who just moved to the country and need to use our services to sort of set themselves up that kind of thing so they were they are kind of as well as being a great resource we were kind of um, a bit of a, the last free space for people to come so we do worry about people being isolated that way so we're trying to do things like our book clubs online we're doing our book drops for people who are maybe cocooning or can't rely on someone to get the books for them we do have all our e-services as well but yeah we're trying to figure out how do we mix the kind of digital with the physical and how, how can we because we don't know how long this is going to go on but um yeah that's our biggest challenge right now obviously the challenge for you for this podcast was to choose some of your favorite books and if i can yeah. take you back to your childhood and the, the favorite book from childhood and the book that you've chosen is the outsiders by se hinton and what was it about that book that made you remember that and choose that so this is my most difficult one because I just I felt like I couldn't remember any books I read. <laughs> I was like, I know I read. I remember the, like obviously lots of Roald Dahl books and Ina Blyton and that kind of thing, but I didn't feel like they were my favourite. Um, and then I, I remembered The Outsiders, and I can't remember what age I was or if it, I studied it in school because I know they're studying it. They studied it the junior cert curriculum over here recently. I, it might it might have been in school that I I read it, but I do remember the atmosphere of the book. And been really sort of not affected by it, but just really, really enjoying it and kind of had a very kind of somber feel to it. And I could be also confusing it with the film as well. Have you read the book? I actually read the, well, I read the book after the film because I think the film, I was more familiar with the film. The film came out about 83. So I was round about that age, just in, I'd just left school. And so that would yeah. have been, I would have, I've seen the film and then went back and read the book after that. And that's why it was interesting because I mentioned the fact, you know, this twin love of literature and film. So I, I wondered yeah, if that was yeah. significant in choosing that book. Yeah, the two of them merged together. So I can't remember which one I read or, or saw first. I mean, the film was great. It was packed full of young upcoming stars. And Ralph Macchio is in it. And he, and he was a big sort of 80s heartthrob for young, young girls. <laughs> but um, yeah, the book, uh, I didn't actually know until researching it. But it was the author, Susan Louise Hinton. She actually wrote it when she was a teenager. Um, so while she was in school herself, she, I think she was about 16 and she lived in Oklahoma and, and it said that she, she based it on her experience there. Growing up in Ireland, it was like, a, obviously it's a bit of an escape. It's about Amer- American high school and, and it's just, it, it was kind of fantasy. I don't, I don't know how realistic it was to her time in school, but it has a kind of West Side Story feel. Really distinct groups. Um, the greasers are sort of down, sort of the rougher, wearing the leather and grease, greasy hair and and then the socials are, are like the jocks. They're very preppy, rich kids, basically. 
Because it's extraordinary when you touched on the fact that she was just a teenager when she wrote that, which yeah. is always, you have to be in awe of anybody who can write something like that at that age. And it was also interesting, some people are citing it as maybe the kind of start of what would now be called young adult fiction. Because I think yeah, she wrote another yeah. book, Rumblefish, which was also turned yeah. into a film in the 80s as well. It's incredible that she got it published, but I read that she had shown it to friends who showed it to her mum, who was a publisher, not a publisher, a writer, and then she took it to her publisher. And it did really well with teachers. So for some reason, that's where it went really popular first with all the teachers across the country. And then I read that one particular teacher in class had, to- had been learning it and they loved it. And they wrote to, they wrote to Francis Ford Capella asking him to, to make the film. So it was like a direct request. <laughs> and he read the book and loved it. And then he made Rumblefish as well. So obviously he really had an affinity with her writing. Because one of the yeah. things I think, you know, like you're never quite sure if you, you read the book first or watched the film, but then yeah. it's always that eternal argument, what's better, the book or the film. But interesting, I think the BBC last year, they, they listed the hundred, what they called the hundred most influential novels. I don't think they were in order, it was just a hundred. The Outsiders was in that list. So, okay. you know, yeah. given the fact that's almost, I think, 50 years since its publication, it just shows you it's still yeah. an impact. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's quite a simple story in that it's just, I mean, it's not simple. Like, it's kind of a lot of action and uh, sort of, I guess it's a commentary on the, on the classes um, or the social classes and then maybe just how we're not all that different, you know, in the end. And, and that, that's the kind of moral there. But yeah, it was great. Like, it, it, names in it as well are brilliant, like Soda Pops and Pony Boy. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a fun, it's a really fun book as well, I think, to read. And it's a very short book as well. So it's kind of a quick read, which I like. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned just at the start, we were chatting about how your mum had been a, a librarian as well. So I, I take it when, when you were growing up, would uh, books always have been in the house? So obviously she would have been encouraging you to read when you were growing up. She wasn't always a librarian. So she, she started working as a librarian in her 40s. So when we were younger she wasn't a librarian but there were there were always books around I don't I don't remember particularly her her love of books but definitely once she became a librarian like anytime you met her she'd open the boot and there'd be all these books in the back and like if you so much as mentioned a particular interest in something or a problem you were having she'd have gone and got you the book on that and to help you I remember one particular time she gave me the book get your shit together (laughs) when I was looking (laughs) when I was between jobs I was like, thanks, ma'am. <laughs> so, yeah, she, she's always, still now, ever since she worked in the library, there's just millions, millions of books now, which is great. And um, we're always yeah. swapping them. In. And how does she feel then about you carrying on in the, in the same profession that, that she was in? For a while, we both, we both worked in the same, for the same employer. So we, she worked in Dunleary Rathdown as well. And it's great, yeah. So, like, I really understand her, her job and, and, you know, we get to talk about what, like, share... Uh, not gossip but share like what the day-to-day and I think we kind of really when we worked together we bored the rest of the family like so it was just like (laughs) right but we never really worked together in the same branch but we work within the the same libraries so yeah no it's it's really I think it's really brought us it's given us some common ground like not that we need any more common ground we're really close but it's given this extra thing which is really nice in terms of the podcast, if I can take you on from the, the Outsiders, and it's to the kind of teenage formative student uh, years, and your favourite book from that time is The Unbearable Lightness of Being by Milan Kundera. This one was hard as well, because so many I liked from my teens. I think I might have talked about this before, with, maybe on one of my podcasts, but I, I don't remember if I understood the book <laughs> when I read it. Uh, but I just loved the feeling. Like, it's a very complicated, very existential, the book. 
I think I read it maybe when I was around 17 or something. It's about a Czech surgeon. He's a bachelor. He has a wife and kid, but he's, he's left them and he's sort of, he's searching for lightness. So the whole kind of thing is about lightness and darkness and or heaviness and versus lightness and how to live feeling very light and free. And um, it seems to do that, you just have lots of affairs and you don't, you don't commit. That seems, that's what I remember as the main thing. You don't, you don't commit. But then it's also like, obviously there's a plot of the, the Prague Spring and, and Soviet soldiers and all that kind of thing is going on as well. I don't know if I got everything in it at the time, but I, I do remember it just, it stayed with me. And I loved the title, The Unbearable Lightness of Being. I just thought it was such a good title. It felt a bit magical. I think I was reading Herman Hesse at the same time and I didn't really understand that either, but I loved it. I, there's something, I felt like I was on the cusp of understanding it or something. Yeah, so it's about, I think, Tomas, would you say? It's his name, Tomas and Sabina and Teresa. So Teresa is his sort of, the woman he, he falls in love with and kind of is trying to commit to. And then Sabina is his mistress and she also has this kind of lightness that he, that he has and they kind of both have that similar, the idea of just you only live once and you need to just, Seek out your feet, follow your feelings where where they where they occur. Similar to your first choice, it was a it was a book that was turned into a film as well. And I know the title. And if there was a quiz question on who wrote the book, I could tell you the answer. But I've not read the book. I've not I've not seen the film. Uh, have you yeah. Have you watched the film as well? Yeah, um, I mean, I saw it years ago. Daniel Day Lewis, Juliet Binoche. The film. I think I, I don't remember when it was made. I watched it probably years after I read the book, and it kind of. I think I was struck by, oh, there's actually a plot. <laughs> like I didn't, I think when I'd read, I didn't feel like there was a plot. But yeah, I, I mean, the film is nice as well. I do like Daniel Day-Lewis, so that was that was. That great. helped. Yeah. Interestingly, when I, was, when I was just checking about the book before we started the podcast, apparently Condera didn't like the film. And he oh, said, really? yeah, he said that it had, he felt it had little to do with the, the spirit of the novel, the characters. So apparently after that, he refused to let any of these other books be adapted for the screen. Oh. God, you'd hate to be that director that did that. <laughs> I think you kind of have to see it as a separate creative enterprise making a film because you're going to upset someone, you know? Yeah. I think if you're a writer, I think you have to kind of almost take the money and just accept, unless you're writing the screenplay yeah. yourself, you just accept that, as you say, it's a, it's a separate art form. Yeah, and it's really hard. How do you convey everything in the book? Like I watched last night um, the, the Charlie Kaufman's film, I'm Thinking of Ending Things. It's really enjoyable. It's really strange. And then at the end, I realized it was a book and then that made more sense because I felt like it's really, it's really, it's really arty. It's very um, unusual and really unsettling. And I didn't fully get it, but I really, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed every scene. But I think if, now knowing that it's a book, I'm like, okay, it would probably, I think something's it's very hard to translate into film. Because you know there's always that eternal debate. And I think most readers, if you see what's better, the film or the book. So most readers will say the book all the time, even in those occasions when it's not. But interestingly, yeah. do you ever, you know, like sometimes you just say you watch a film and then you realise it's actually based on a book. Do you go back and then maybe read the book or vice versa if you've read the book? Does it make you want to see the film adaptation more or less if, if you've loved the book? I think more. Especially, yeah, if I, I would always think that you should read the book first um, and then you kind of just relax into it and you don't worry if it's not really following it. I do remember, and I probably, this was probably one from, from my, was it my teens? Charlotte Grey by Sebastian Fawkes. I loved that book. Then I loved the film because I loved the book. But the film's not particularly good, not particularly great. They actually changed the ending in that as well, which is kind of what you want the ending to be, I think. <laughs> so it's, it's a little bit tying it up with a bow. But yeah, I just I didn't take it too seriously because I, I just really enjoyed the book. I mentioned again at the start in the introduction that you run a podcast as well. How, how have you found that? It's obviously 
you know, you touched on it already, the fact that you just get to chat about books all the time and is it something mm. you create as part of your job and is it something you quite enjoy doing? I, yeah, I, I really like doing it. It's kind of almost like selfishly, it's like a license to just find out about, like mine people for good recommendations and sort of use them for, they've gone and read everything and they're going to tell me how great it is. And like, you know, it's kind of, and I don't mean that, I mean, I'm joking, but like, it is great to be able to share that with people because I, I find that's the main thing that, that we talk about in recommending books when people come in and, and that people kind of have that with their friends as well. You, you kind of trust more than just reading in the paper or something. You kind of trust what you hear through other people, word of mouth about what's a good book. And I kind of wanted to choose people who are really knowledgeable in a particular area. So their years of experience in a certain topic or a certain genre. And they've picked out the best ones in that. So I think, yeah, and especially because we're a library, we're not just dealing in new books. So people are unearthing stuff, you know, from all different years, which is kind of a way to, for us to. And I mean, I don't, I don't know if people actually go out and rent these books, but hopefully they do. It's a way to sort of keep the movement of the of the books going out. Well, do you know it's funny because I do it some some years where I keep a note of all the books that I've read because you know that invariably yeah. you end up forgetting what you've read over yeah. the course of the year. So I've actually I'd looked through the list the other day and probably the majority of books I've read this year have come on the back of recommendations that people on the podcast have given me. That, that some days, as you yeah, say, yeah. you know, like somebody talks about a book with such love and enthusiasm, and it kind of it's, it's infectious, and you think. I'm going to go and check that out and I've had some great yeah. recommendations of things new and old I would otherwise probably never have read. Yeah no it's really good for that isn't it and, and so so yeah it's a selfish thing isn't it so you're getting loads of recommendations for yourself yeah. as well. Absolutely absolutely. Well, you are listening to the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddyhead, and my guest, Hayley Reynolds. And Hayley, we're on to your third book choice. Um, it's a book that you would recommend to anyone. And given what we were just touching on, the fact that you know I get book recommendations from each of my guests, the book that you've chosen, which is The Unwomanly Face of War by Svetlana Alexievich. When I was just checking up this book, I thought, this is a book that I want to read. And, and what was it about this book that would make you want to recommend it to anyone? Fitzcarraldo Editions is a publication that our publisher that do lovely, interesting books. So we got we got in her book Secondhand Time, which is her latest book. And I just started sort of flicking through it and then I was starting to hear her name. I hadn't heard of her before and I realised she'd won the Nobel Prize for Literature in two thousand fifteen. Not that that would alone make me want to read someone, but I was curious why like I hadn't heard of her before. And she obviously she's a she's um from Belarus and her books are translated, but she's an amazing writer. It's just sort of a, a style I've never come across before. I've always kind of read about war. Like I, I'm kind of quite interested in World War Two books and kind of always drawn to that kind of nonfiction. The book I've chosen is Unwomanly Face of War. And she, she basically, they call her a polyphonic writer. So that's kind of, she's like an oral historian and she, polyphonic means many voices. So she, she will interview hundreds of thousands of people for years so like some each book takes her about five to ten years to write and she will just spend her time visiting the places she wrote about Chernobyl and also the Afghan war so Soviet Afghan war so with Chernobyl she was visiting Chernobyl for 10 years and she wrote the oral history of a nuclear disaster and then with the Afghan war she she traveled around Afghanistan for four years so she's really really dedicated to her format they call her a new kind of literary genre. So she's she's um, 
I might actually just read one of her quotes to explain how she describes it. She says, I'm interested not only in the reality that surrounds us, but in the one that is within us. I'm interested not in the event itself, but in the event of feelings. Let's say the soul of the event. For me, feelings are reality. And history, it is in the street, in the crowd. I believe that in each of us, there is a small piece of history in one half of a page, in another two or three. Together, we write the book of time. So her books are, they're just, some of them are paragraphs, some of them are like three pages long. It's just people's memories of what happened. It's the personal experience and it's kind of a way of capturing the trauma of war on nations and families. And it really, like it's kind of harrowing read, obviously, because it goes into a lot of details. But the more you read, you kind of get this sense of, of what happens to community. And this one on women, it's about this, the Soviet women who, who enlisted and worked in all areas, whether it was like as a medic or telephone operator or like on the front line as well or flying planes, that kind of thing. So it, that, I feel like that doesn't really, you don't really read about that as much and especially not in such detail like this. So she has this way of, uh, even though it's their words, she, she puts it together really beautifully. So she, she'll choose fragments of what they say like, so she'll have hours of footage or uh, audio with one person and then she will weave that together to make a sort of very poetic kind of story. And she'll use like the ellipses to signify pauses or where she's put in another fragment. And, and occasionally she'll have her own kind of words in there, but it's mainly, it's just their words. Because I think it's, you know, you kind of touch on it there that I think quite often, probably not even just the Second World War, but other wars, that women play such an important part in it, but then their voices are forgotten about yeah. or are kind of suppressed at the end of the yeah. war. It's all about the, the heroics of the men or the suffering of men. But actually, without the women, the outcome of the war would be completely different. Kind of this idea yeah. that they're just like waving them off to war and, and then like, you know, pulling up the sleeves and like taking over the farms. But there's mu- it was much more than that. You know, they, they really were. The version that I saw that I thought I'd, I'd quite like to read, even just for, you know, the idea of judging a book by its cover. And it was a, a Penguin edition, but it's a picture of a, a Soviet female soldier from oh, just like, looking at the camera. It? It's really eye-catching. It is, yeah. It's a it's a beautiful photo. That's at the same. I saw that. It's like, there's a her eyes are really sort of just speaking to you. Because it's interesting as well. I think the book, you know, when I think when she first finished it back in the eighties, you know, at the time that had been at the height of the Soviet Union, and they they didn't want it to be published because obviously yeah. their kind of post-war narrative was women's place was at home, and it was only obviously in recent years it's, it's that country's it broke up and it's opened up. Then people have been allowed to. To read that, and as I say, she's given a voice to all these women that she that she was living among, alongside, who had these incredible, extraordinary stories of courage and suffering that needed to be told. Yeah, and for some women, I I read in the book when they came back, they were treated really well on the front line or in in the war with the men. They had this bonding where they felt like they were all one. And then when they came back, they were kind of left out of the celebrations. They weren't really revered the way that the male soldiers were. And they kind of just had to get on with life then. And they kind of felt like they didn't share in that kind of respect that the men got. So I I love that she's one person has captured all these voices and and told these stories that that no one else would have possibly taken and that they just would have died with those stories. Because it really takes a while for, for people to bring up the trauma. And you can tell in some of the... They don't really want to talk about it, but they also have this feeling that they have to talk about it. So, yeah, I just think it's really, really important, necessary reading. Like, it is it is really dark. I could read some more if you want another quote. Yeah, absolutely, um, yes. Okay, so this is one of the soldiers. Her name is um, Zineda Masilyevna. 
In battle near Budapest, it was winter. I was carrying a wounded sergeant, the commander of a machine gun crew. I was wearing trousers and a warm jacket, a flap-eared cap on my head. I'm carrying him and I see this blackish snow charred. I realise that it's a deep shell hole, which is what I need. I go down into the hole and there's someone alive. I sense he's alive. I hear metallic scraping. I turn and there's a wounded German officer, wounded in the legs, lying there and aiming his machine gun at me. My hair has slipped from under my cap and I also have a medical kit on my shoulder with a red cross. When I turned, he saw my face, realised I was a girl. His nerves relaxed and he threw aside his machine gun. He no longer cared. And so the three of us are in the same hole, our wounded man, me and this German. The hole is small, our legs touch. I'm all covered with their blood. Our blood mingles. The German has such huge eyes and he looks at me with those eyes. What am I to do? Cursed fascist. He threw the sudden machine gun aside at once, you see. That scene. Our wounded man doesn't understand what's going on. Clutches his pistol. Reaches out and wants to strangle him. But the German just stares at me. I remember those eyes even now. I'm bandaging our man and the other one's lying in blood. He's losing blood. One of his legs is completely smashed. A little longer and he'll die. I see that very well. And before I finish bandaging our man, I tore up the German's clothes, twisted them into a tourniquet, bandaged him and then went back to bandaging ours. The German says, gut, gut. He keeps repeating that word. Our wounded man, before he lost consciousness, shouted something at me, threatening. I caressed him, soothed him. When the ambulance came, I pulled them both out and put them in. The German too. That's one of the less violent stories. Because <laughs> you're waiting there for, for somebody to come up and shoot the German and you kind of wonder what happens when he disappears in the, the ambulance. Yeah, yeah, I know, yeah. But I mean, guess that she's done her, her one thing there. Yeah. But, Just a wee glimpse of humanity in a time of horror, isn't it? I mean, some of it's really hard to read, especially when there's kids involved. Uh, and there's a lot about what happens when they come back as well, when they're back home trying to get on with their lives and how difficult it is to live as women when they've lived this war as well. So, yeah, it's, it's a brilliant book. C- certainly, as I mentioned, that's the one that right away I'm thinking, right, that going to end up uh, on the yeah. list of books to read. I mean, in terms of the, the kind of books that you read, in terms of, of genre, are you quite, you kind of sort of switch between fiction and non-fiction? Or is it just things that catch your eye or, as you say, recommendations you might get on your podcast? It's kind of a mix. Uh, I, I read a lot of non-fiction for ages, I had this feeling that I had to read nonfiction because there's too much to learn and I didn't have time to read fiction. I kind of, but um, I'm reading a lot more fiction at the moment. I'm doing a writing course and we're doing Irish female writers. So um, I've been reading like Sally Rooney and Nisha Dolan and Neve Campbell. Um, there's loads of brilliant Irish writers that are just published recently. So yeah, I've, I've, I've been reading loads of fiction and uh, my boyfriend, he works in the book industry as well and he, he's really into fiction. So he would give me lots of fiction books that I probably wouldn't have chosen myself. Um, I'm kind of expanding my taste a little bit. And in terms of, you know, your, your, the, the writing course, is that, in terms of your own writing, is that something that you're, that you're interested in doing? Yeah, so I would say I was into writing before, like, reading a lot. So, like, I kind of, we did a lot of creative writing when I was younger, and I, it's something I want to get back into. So I'm kind of just being very relaxed about it and thinking, you know, five-year plan of learning the craft. And I think a really good way of that is just sort of looking at how these books, I really admire how, how they string a sentence together. The writing class, it's with the Irish Writers Centre. It's great. We all read a book and then we it, we kind of have a conversation about it. And some people write a response to it. And it's, yeah, it's, I just want to learn a bit more about like how I'm reading the books and how they're, yeah, how they're structured as well. Because the thing is, it's always, anytime you have a, 
with other Arvita, I hear anybody talking about advice for writers. I mean, the two things, obviously, the first thing, you know, to write, that's what you should be doing, but, you know, read, read a lot, read everything, because, you know, whether it's in a formal classroom setting or study setting or just reading it yourself, you're taking things in in terms of how plots are developed, characters develop, sentence structure, everything, and you're probably, even subconsciously, you're, you're kind of taking everything in, and up. it can only help you when, you know, when you're doing your own writing. Yeah, yeah, because I find I can't commit to plots. <laughs> so I just start writing and they're like just little vignettes. They don't, like nothing happens in them. And I'm like, how do I make something happen? And like, in some dialogue, I need, like I really need to, that, that's the next step. So I'm kind of um, learning how to do that. But uh, what's really interesting in the class actually is just because it's online, if it, if it wasn't for this pandemic, we'd be in the Writers' Centre in the evenings. But because it is online, we, we have people around the world in the course. So and there's all ages as well. So we, we all have very different reactions to some of the books. And it is it's very centred around um, female experience. So it's interesting to see, you know, what the older women think of, of the younger writers and, and vice versa. So it, other people's opinions can really affect, you know, what you think of the work as well. In terms of moving the podcast on, we've gone from a book that you would recommend to anyone to uh, a book or something that you couldn't be paid to read again. And, and what you've chosen is Arthur Schopenhauer's essay on women, which... I, I wasn't familiar with it at all, and although I did kind of do a quick search and read the cursory first paragraph, and I'm thinking, I'm guessing that it, <laughs> the reasons why you would absolutely hate that. Yeah, well, I I did struggle to pick something that I wouldn't read again because like I, it's not like I would never read that again. You know, I'm not like I'm not offended personally, but I do remember being quite angry. So I kind of I I don't really know much about philosophy, but I wanted to get into it years ago and starting to read and I found On the Suffering of the World by Schopenhauer he was the first kind of philosopher I read that I thought this I like this sort of pessimism it, it's a kind of almost weirdly an uplifting way to to look at the world like not expecting anything amazing and just sort of it, it kind of spoke to me and it, it was comforting and then I felt like okay maybe I'll read more about him and, and it's not until like a couple of years later I, I got back into it and then I read the essay on women that he wrote and I had been enjoying his ideas and I had felt really drawn to his negative way of looking at the world, which felt in itself, I thought, kind of positive. But then when I read that, I just felt like, God, he really, really hates women. It's so derogatory. Like, it, it's so blatant. Like, there's no disguising it, the way he talks about women. He even talks about our physicality. Like, how could we be considered beautiful with our, you know, wide hips and bow legs? And like, he's talking physically like about us, like we're animals. I read the word termagant, which I didn't know what that was. I had to look it up. I thought it was a seabird, but it basically... It's an overbearing woman. So that's what he's calling men are tied to termagants. And I just felt a little bit, I felt just disappointed. I was like, he didn't seem to be able to apply his philosopher logic to women and, and the women that he, he was referencing. He says they were, you know, frivolous and incapable of, of creating any good art or having any good thoughts. It just was like, it was just very disappointing, I thought. <laughs> I think he's like an 18th or 19th century German philosopher. I wasn't aware of him at all, but when I... Again, I just Googled and there was an abridged version of his essay on women. So when I read this, I'll read this first paragraph. And then, yeah. as I say, as soon as I read that, I thought, well, I can understand why, why you wouldn't appreciate it. So he says, one needs only to see the way she is built to realise that woman is not intended for great mental or for great physical labour. She expiates the guilt of life not through activity, but through suffering, through the pains of childbirth, caring for the child and subjection to the man to whom she should be a patient and cheering companion. Great suffering, joy, exertion is not for her. Her life should flow by more quietly, trivially, gently than the man's, without being essentially 
happier or unhappier. That's pretty hard. Pretty yeah. hard to say than Watson. Um, I mean, there'll be an element of, yeah. of its time, but you know, certainly he'd have been speaking to a specific audience, and it wouldn't have been. Yeah, known. I mean, he's known as is an arch misogynist, or kind of like he. I, I did, it didn't go unnoticed that he was misogynist, but um, I've, in reference to like not being able to create any good art, like he didn't really. I felt that was just really short-sighted and it made me think of this essay um, by Linda Notchlin called Why Are There No Great Women Artists? And, and she goes, she's an um, American feminist and she would talk about how women weren't afforded the same opportunities as men. So they weren't allowed into the institute, art institutions. They weren't given the time to practice, you know, the, the art of art. <laughs> they weren't given the time to develop their skill um, the way men were. So it's just so short-sighted for him to even think that women can't create art. But there, I did read that he softened a little bit in later in life and he met this one artist, a sculptor called Elizabeth Ney, and she was um, doing his portrait in, in, as a stone sculpture, I think. Um, and she may be the only woman that he ever complimented. But he said, oh, after meeting her, I have not yet spoken my last word about women. I believe that if a woman succeeds in withdrawing from the mass, or rather raising herself above the mass, and grows ceaselessly and more than a man. But she, Ney, she grew up, with the sculptor as a dad, and she worked with him. Her parents all really fought along with the local bishop to get her into college, and she became the first female sculpture student at the Munich Academy of Art. So that just shows, like, you know, she's good because, you know, she was allowed to do all those things, like, and, and he just couldn't see that. And so, yeah, he definitely, once I read that, I just, I kind of just wasn't going to go back and read him again. <laughs> I suppose even, you know, I, I mentioned he's the 18th and 19th century, but I suppose there's plenty of more contemporary examples in, in the arts and, and in other professions where it's taken a long time for women to try and establish quality and parity or they're still having to try and do it because yeah. some of these attitudes for a whole variety of reasons are entrenched whether it's just trying to protect a, a territory or not. Definitely I do and lately I did read um, in their search for this that uh, he's kind of been adopted by this sort of alt-right group now as their kind of leading philosopher and um, they're called Magtau or MGTOW, M-G-T-O-W, they're men who hate women. Sorry, that's not what they stand for. That's not what that stands for. I don't know what the M-G-T-O-W stands for. Oh yeah, men going their own way, that's it. So they're kind of sworn off women, they don't want to have any relationships with women, and they love Schopenhauer. <laughs> they like have loads of videos of his his philosophy, like you, thousands of times, and they've kind of taken that as the gospel. You mentioned, you know, you know the fact that you you wanted to start reading more about philosophy and you've kind of touched on it a couple of times in the podcast. Is it just something that you're always, in terms of, you know, your own learning and, you know, wanting to expand your, your, your reading habits and, and different subject matters? Is that just something that's always interested you? If, you? if you something catches your attention, you just want to kind of immerse yourself in it? Yeah, yeah. I think it probably comes from insecurity. Like I wanted to do different things in college. Like I, I did a media production and film, but I kind of wish I had studied you know, English philosophy or something like that. So I kind of feel like I'm almost trying to make up for lost time. Um, but now it's just an, it's just an, uh, an interest and a, a lot of family and friends would be interested in, in similar things. My brother, he reads a lot, he writes. And my younger sister is an art history graduate and, and she writes a lot as well. So it's kind of stuff that we would share with each other. And I would be drawn to sort of existential kind of writing and like theories. I, I kind of, more so than just, plain fiction I kind of like the introspective I like books that are like kind of over short periods of time as well so like it's more about the, the interiority of, of the person you know I mentioned again that you studying part-time for a master's how have you been able to balance that in terms of obviously what can would be a lot of demands academically on you in terms of the master's 
at the moment, like COVID's actually sort of been helping a little bit because I, part of my job is well, the online stuff we're doing as well, but I've been allowed to work on my master's as well. So that's been really great. And the next sort of couple of months, I'm going to put my head down and do a lot. The thing with the one I'm doing, it's, in, it's actually the University in Wales. So it's going to do it in your own time, um, which has been probably taking me longer than if I had to go into a class. So, I, you know, because you can stop and go when you want. So I'm probably not the most disciplined, but I have, you know, it is a great course and I, I've been enjoying it. Were there universities in Ireland that would have offered that or was it just that one? Yeah, there is. There's, there's one in, um, in Dublin DBS, but I would have had to do two late nights every week as well as doing two late nights in my, my shift work. I just kind of wanted to do it in my own time. So with the online one, I get to choose when, when I do it. So I can right. fit in, you know, hour here and there. In terms of uh, the podcast, we're now on to the last book choice, and that is either the last book you read or the book that you're currently reading. And the book that you've chosen is called Don't Touch My Hair by Emma Dabiri. The book, um, Emma Dabiri, she's uh, one of the books we're doing in, in the writing course. So it's the one I'm currently reading, and it's really good. She's Irish-Nigerian, and she grew up in Dublin. She's an academic of African studies and she sort of mixes it with personal experience of being like the only black girl in, in an Irish school and, and that some of the racism she received. Um, and then also a really sort of in-depth in history of African hair and, and what it what it meant before slavery and, and all the different ways. Like I felt I didn't know any any of the, the sort of intricacies of, of black hair and what like what it the ways it's, it's kept and the way it's styled and what it means and just the sort of the history in the hair and how it, it's kind of was used as a sort of a divisive way then after you know slavery and um to bring shame on on black people specifically women and uh how they had to sort of strive to for the ideals of white hair and that like especially being one of the only black um girls in dublin she always hated her hair and she'd pray for straight sleek hair and how it kind of how it affected her and how it would turn black people against each other as well with um the kind of ranking of oh this is this hair is worse than that hair and yeah it's really it's a really interesting book um so it's a mix of the personal experience and the the academic as well I suppose it goes to the heart of how you know maybe in the changing face of Dublin you know the fact that you know she's maybe just one of the, the few people from from that background in the city but that you know that that's constantly evolving not just in Dublin but elsewhere as well as people come in and out from different countries yeah yeah and she says that she it was almost an event if she saw another black person growing up so in the 80s that would have been rare I mean obviously it's changing um she, she's actually moved to London and she says she couldn't live here again because she, she needs her sort of sorority of black sisters around her. She thought it was too difficult to not. So she, she didn't have a great experience here, but she's de- definitely still identifies Irish. Her mum's Irish. And so she remembers people with like nuns, especially with patter on the head, you know, to feel her hair. And, and there's one one story of a nun sort of grabbing her face and looking at her teeth and going, oh, I love Nigerian teeth, they're so white. And just this, this feeling that they could just grab her and sort of feel free to just touch her hair like that. So it's without realising it. She wouldn't realise at the time, but like later, you just feel you're being singled out for being different, not Irish. She, yeah, so it's, it's, it's about sort of her kind of blowing back that, that pride that she should have in her hair. And um, it, it, it does talk a lot about the hairstyle. I'm still going through it. I mean, I'm not that far into it. So she does go into details about how the braided hair and cornrows and that would have been used as a sort of a language pre-slavery. So there are all these different things that would mean depending on what tribe you're in or how it was styled. And um, there's different styles that would be for queen queen's hairstyle or it would be for 
for the maps, creating maps or messages, things like that. So um, it's a really important element in, in the, their sort of identity. It would be interesting, you know, you mentioned earlier on about how reactions to the different books that you've been, been reading will vary depending on you know, maybe the age of the reader or where people are, are from. That's the sort of book that would be really interesting when it comes yeah. to, to discuss it, to see what sort of reaction that a hard book gets from, from people in the class. I know we, we one of the ladies was saying her, she has a disabled son and he would feel the same that someone would just feel they need they could pat him on the head you know and he would be really upset by that There's, so there is it does highlight uh, how people are, are offending people without realizing um I, yeah I think it's a really important book because I mean just to and she goes into cultural appropriation I haven't got to that bit yet but I know that she talks about that later in the book um yeah it's it's eye-opening I didn't realize how many different sort of African communities with different styles of hair and what it means to them as well because you say it's just when you know those those wee moments that only that she would be able to relate or relate back to you or as you, as you say of somebody just taking her face when she's at school and examining her teeth like that and the moment might be gone in the blink of an eye but what that does to her as a child and how that stays yeah. with her is you have no idea what the effect of that will be, which is why it's important yeah. for her to, to explain because it's things that maybe someone else in the class wouldn't even, most people wouldn't even have remembered that. It's scarring and it's just, it's that, it's accumulation of moments like that, I think that would, for a young girl, it's just so devastating. Because one of the other things that's, that strikes me with some of your book choices as well, and then particularly in relation to the fact that you're doing this writing class and you're quite keen in terms of developing the, the idea of your craft of writing is that, do you see yourself perhaps going and writing more non-fiction or fiction? Because it just when I think of some of the choices and the way you've kind of been speaking about the kind of the books are structured and the and the quality of the writing in that book and then also in the unwomanly face of war. No, I think I would like I'd love to write fiction, I think. But like where nothing happens. <laughs> I don't think I'd be very good at plot. But um I am writing starting to write with my younger sister who writes, so we're trying to write together. And and it, I'm thinking memoir, autofiction, that type of thing. But I have no immediate plans to like release anything so or try and release something into the world. So it'll just be yeah. for myself. To be fair, I'm not sure if anybody listening to the podcast will be saying at the moment, I want to read that book when nothing happens. I know, yeah. I have to work <laughs> on my pitch or my PR. <laughs> I, I just at the moment I just want to like develop the craft of it and, and then like write maybe sh- like essays and short stories and figure out what it is I like, like what really moves me about books that I really like and then, you know, try and copy it. <laughs> and I think, to be fair, I think people would know, because people have always read books which on the surface, nothing seems to happen, but actually loads happens that, you know, there's, yeah. there's all those things going on, but it's just the way the, the writer has developed those characters and, and what they say and, and how they interact, perhaps within a very confined space that can tell everything. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm aiming for. <laughs> Hopefully a lot is actually happening. Um, in terms of, obviously, in terms of your own reading, have you, do you always kind of know what you're going to be reading next or is it just things come uh, up? No, I'm really bad. I'm always starting books. I mean, because they, they, in the library, they'll just come across your desk and you'll just be like, oh, I really want to have a look at that. So you might like read it on your lunch break or I've got like so many books on the go. I have to, the course has been good because it's, ma- it's making me read one particular book. So when I leave in the morning, I always w- wonder what book will I bring in to work with me to read on the train and lately I'm just like no I have to stick to the one book that I'm reading um because I would take depending on the size of the book and how it fits in my bag like it would be a number of things so yeah I'm really bad for starting lots of books but I am finishing more books recently than I have been excellent and uh, you've given us some certainly given me some recommendations 
uh, for today. Sadly, we're out of time for the podcast, Hayley. Um, thanks for joining me on the podcast. If anybody wants to check out Hayley's recommendations, the books she's chosen on the podcast, just go to my website, www.paulcuddehy.com. Each guest has their own page, and I just list the books that, that you've chosen. And uh, we look forward at some point in the future to, uh, to picking up your novel where everything happens, but nothing happens. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a good title, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> you can have that. Maybe, maybe nothing happens, but everything happens. <laughs> um, and also, just uh, finally, if anybody wants to check out uh, your podcast as well, they can just go on. Is it the DLR SoundCloud account? Um, yeah, you can just go to the DLR Library's website, and then there's online so online resources, and it, it's under podcasts. So, yeah, yeah. And I'm sure if you, if you check out, just even Google, need to read the podcast then you'll be able to hear uh, Hayley chat to various guests and get much more recommendations. But for just now, Hayley, thanks very much for joining me on the Read All About It podcast. Thank you for asking me. That's really, it was fun. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast and I'd love to hear what you thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at readallabout20, on Instagram at readallaboutitpodcast, or you can send an email to readallaboutit at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddihy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading.